Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we break down the curated links from damninteresting.com in an insightful and hopefully humorous way. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Courtney Hopkin. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Okay, this is from MIT Technology Review, titled The Fall and Rise of a Spyware Empire. Um, and this fun article is just a profile of an Italian firm formerly known as Hacking Team, now under new ownership as Memento Labs. They were founded in 2004. It's still very much in business today. Um, their flagship product is RCS, Remote Control System which offers invisible infection of 99% of platforms in the world, including Mac OS, Linux, Android, iOS, and BlackBerry. Nice. Yes. Wait, I'm sorry. They offer invisible what? Invisible infection. Of That's so like a, they're on your system and you don't know it. Yeah. That's such an elegant way to phrase that. Mm. And the rebranding into something memento, mm. like that all but says like, yeah, we are in your base, mm -hmm. whatever. We're in we, your blood. Yeah. We're just... <laughs> Probably sounds even better in the original Italian. -y. Invisible. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the tool infects any number of targets, quote, through the use of exploited security vulnerabilities. With RCS, a hacker can control the microphone and camera, take screenshots, ultimately gain complete control of the targeted machine. And this is, you know, this is just a legitimate firm. That does, uh, I mean, Italian, but otherwise legitimate. <laughs> otherwise legitimate. I can say that. You can't say that. That's right. That. That's right. <laughs> you know, large military industrial countries of the world, of course, already have, you know, their own internal ways of doing these things. But this firm does a booming business with, you know, sort of more mid-sized countries. So it's who a are looking for an family-owned spy business. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a very touching. It's an heirloom startup. Bad people in every government <laughs> in the world can have an easy off-the-rack uh, solution. The author of the piece at one point asks the owner of this firm, I believe his name is uh, Paolo Lezzi, the author asks, uh, how do you make sure there is no abuse? And the owner of the company just uh, gestures to a display of machine guns. So he shrugged and was like, why does everyone ask uh, us uh, this question, but uh, no one asks them that the question? And, you know, when your response to an ethical question is just like, you just look for a machine gun and That's like right. point They're to it. They're worse like, than me. Hey, look, they, guns, case closed. That's right. Good. Yeah. Very solid argument. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Oysters. Mm, who here likes oysters? I do. I, I, it depends on the day. I could sometimes. A little champagne. Yeah, all right. Shoot 20 or 30 oysters in the middle of a hot day. Well, not too hot because <laughs> you know the rule about only eating oysters in months with an R, right? Have you ever heard this maxim before? Uh, okay, so that, that cuts out summer, basically. Pretty much. Okay. So on a really, really hot day is when you should actually not mm, be eating oysters. Love and... to cool down with an oyster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they serve them on ice or they should if you're eating them raw oh, yeah. but hopefully you'll still like oysters after we get into this article um it's called only eat oysters in months with an r rule of thumb is at least four thousand year old years oh. old yeah this is from uh the florida museum it turns out that there was an analysis of a large shell ring off of georgia's coast that revealed that ancient inhabitants of saint Catharines island limited their oyster harvest to non-summer months the way they knew this is by measuring parasitic snails. 
So snails known as impressed odostomes, they're common parasites of oysters. And what they do is they latch onto a shell. They insert a stylus to slurp the soft insides. And because the snail has a very predictable 12-month life cycle, its length at death can give a reliable estimate of when the oyster died. And so what they found is that the seasonality of the shell ring that they analyzed may be one of the earliest records of sustainable harvesting. Oysters in the southeast spawn from May to October. And um, avoiding collecting oysters in the summer can help replenish their numbers. So it was kind of like an early way of saying, hey, this is when they're getting their thing on. Let's don't overfish. You want to keep your population going. Exactly right. Look, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Sounds like a good time-tested wisdom. But don't you ever just like take home a to-go box of oysters? You pop them in the microwave. Get those oysters good and <laughs> See, now I'm the opposite. and hot. I'm not a giant fan of oysters, but I've eaten escargot. And I genuinely, I like it. Like oh, it's, snails are amazing. delicious. Now, delicious. Maybe parasitic snails, <laughs> different yeah. flavor, different mm-hmm. bouquet. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't be as good. But it does I, help in the case of escargot, the, the drowning in butter and garlic yeah. in order That's, to. Okay. Yeah. It's admittedly not. Does, uh, doesn't hurt. Yeah, yeah. It does help Sopping a lot. that up with some crusty French bread Ooh. on the side. And I'm sure it's a very different species of snail. Like if you were eating something that had a stylus, you'd probably know. You'd probably notice, yeah. I don't know. Like you said, it's pretty. But escargot snails are like the eaten snails are big, hefty eaten snails. Are they? I don't know. The ones I had were, they were little. But maybe they shrink when you cook them. I don't know. I would eat a stylus. I'd have a plate of hot oysters, a nice hot stylus. <laughs> I'll take three snail stylies. Yeah. yeah. As, a, as an appetizer. Yeah. Just a tapas. And you know. a frosty, frosty glass of uh, big red mixed with, <laughs> uh, you know, a little vodka. <laughs> vodka and big red. <laughs> Wash it all down. Oh, you're eating in, in the On the hottest month of the summer, vomit for a month. <laughs> That's how you get your beach body. Uh, you, yeah. it's, it's a cleanse, actually. Yeah. It, it, yes, it's a total body cleanse. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. So have you ever seen the Pizza Hut commercial with Gorbachev? Yes. Yeah, I have. It uh, takes place in Russia. Gorbachev walks in, and all the people who are at the Pizza Hut already are like, look who it is. <laughs> hey. Then they proceed to have an argument about what Gorbachev has given the country. This is post him being ousted. And so finally, an old lady says, he's given us Pizza Hut. And uh, (laughs) that's that's the commercial. Yeah. The article written by this website called Foreign Policy is more a article about the actual production of the commercial and the effect it had. Yeah. As you say, it seems tasteless from an American perspective. I can only imagine how the Russian population. Well, this was shown in America. It was for Americans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, still not great. Gorbachev was drowning financially. Uh, they gave him a, a what do you call that when you when you retire? Pension. Pension. A pension for thousand rubles per month. But then after the economy started tanking, they didn't adjust it for inflation. He was making like two dollars a month. Oh, whoa! And so he was, you know, trying some stuff to get some money, oh, some sponsorships. Mm. And so Pizza Hut approached him, which. He refused to eat pizza on camera, so he brought in his granddaughter. You can see that in the commercial. They walk in together, and she eats the pizza, and he's just sort of sitting, standing there, like, looking approvingly at her. <laughs> like, from a dietary perspective? Like, no, what was it his... was like a, uh, I don't want to say pride, but it was more like a, a stature sort of thing. But right. it was like a thing like, I've been a leader of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't be eating pizza. It's yeah. not like our politicians who, like, rush to shove a corn dog in their face at the first opportunity. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, it shows how folksy we are. Right. 
Yeah, but he wasn't willing to do the close-in shot with the, the rubbery mozzarella. With it running know, down his chin. <laughs> running, yeah. You're not supposed to eat the pizza. You're supposed to look at a grandchild eating <laughs> a right. pizza. Pat her head. And, and say, yeah. mm. we are here to supervise. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, the commercial features long shots of the Red Square with uh, snow in it. Uh, it was Pizza Hut's way of proving that they were more worldly or maybe more important than, say, Domino's or Little Caesars. <laughs> I, I do remember this commercial kind of vividly as being so emblematic of that, like, the Soviet Union had failed. And obviously, we now knew that, like, capitalism was going to solve all the world's problems. Right, and we had figured thing. out the perfect uh, way to organize a society. Um, and it was by like brands like Pizza Hut mm-hmm. leading the way forward for all of us. And, has, and we would not have any big problems anymore. And then, you know, that's, and of that course, that's to borne out. worked out. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally worked out. We handed it all over to Pizza Hut. <laughs> and and, and they're connected to the Italian spy ring and it all worked out. <laughs> Next all right. link. Next, Next link. link. So obviously as children, we all have hopes and dreams and what we want to be when we grow up. Uh, And I think it's fair to say that aside from personality differences and everybody's preferences, I think all toddlers on some level want to grow up to be nudists. Right. Uh, Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, my children spent as much time as possible naked. So uh, nudists are what we're discussing here. This is from The Guardian. There are, in fact, a lot of subtleties in the nudist community, apparently, or naturists, as they prefer to be known. And there is, in fact, a little bit of a war going on between Uh, different factions in the naturist community. Of course. Like, listen, you can't have a subset uh, sort of thing that you're really into without some minor discrepancy tearing people into pieces (laughs) and driving Uh, hatred among the community. Absolutely. Well, and that's what's, what's going on here. Turns out that Pasco County, Florida, has the largest collection of nudist resorts in the world. It is like nudist central. They have 13 separate resorts in a 15-mile stretch right there along Tampa Bay. There are 10,000 permanent residents. And then they also have about a million tourists annually who come and buy a day pass. Because it's sort of if you live on the premises, there's like homeowners association dues sort of. But then you can show up for the day and just sort of hang out on the beach or do all the activities and then go home at night. So on one side of this argument, we have Lake Como, which is like the the ideal what you imagine a bunch of hippie nudists are all about. <laughs> like they are family friendly. They're like, this has nothing to do with sex. This is a body is beautiful and we're communing with nature. And it, there's literally absolutely nothing sexy about it. It was founded in 1941 after a doctor told this guy, Ava Brubaker, that he had a rare skin disease and the best way to treat it was to just sunbathe as much as possible. Mm. So at the time, obviously, in the 1940s, it was even harder to sort of... Another yeah. thing that stood the it was test illegal. Time. That's right. It was illegal to be naked in the 40s just period, in America. Yeah, ever. it didn't become legal to be naked in America <laughs> till I think the, the first Beatles LP was released here. Sounds about right. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. So he, they bought this huge plot of land, so they sort of were surrounded by swampy trees and stuff, and no one can see them, but they enjoyed it so much they started inviting their friends over, and they're like, come be naked with us, and it turned into this colony. And the interesting thing about it is they're sort of all in on this, everybody's equal, and they have a quote here that says, if gender, race, and sexuality are immaterial, then wealth and class are too. And so uh, they have like, I don't know if Karl Marx was a nudist, 
<laughs> or they just somehow got a nude statue of Karl Marx. <laughs> no. But they have one. Yeah. There's a nude statue of Karl Marx in the lobby of the American Nudist Research Library. <gasps> and that's sort of one of their things is like, yeah. we're all equal. Our membership dues go back to the community. They pay lots of taxes. Like, they're a super big boon to the state of Florida. Everybody <laughs> likes them. Well, and just think of the amount of money you could make charging for selfies with that statue. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nude sure. Marx. Love it. <laughs> but then... On the other side of the war, we have Caliente Club, whose oh. name I think sort of starts to indicate what it is that they're all about. Mm -hmm. They actually used to be a sort of family-friendly place as well, but they said they weren't able to make enough money. They were they were just failing as a nonprofit. <laughs> we need to Not appeal to the horn dogs. Yeah, so they started advertising heavily towards swingers and young people. And especially sort of alternative lifestyles. There's lots of booze. They don't allow anyone under 21. And the American Association for Nude Recreation is sort of the lobbying legal advice funding organization for all of these resorts. And they actually kicked out Caliente Club just recently because they said, you're not promoting the family friendly values. You're making everybody think we're weirdos. And meanwhile, Caliente Club has actually gone and put up uh, metal detectors at their entrance because they're more concerned with just all sorts of, I don't even, I don't think they think other nudists are going to come get them. I think because they cater to a clientele that is more uh, worldly, like after the Pulse nightclub shooting mm. and after they, right. they sort of sure. feel like they're going to be targets from a different group of mm. people than a bunch of naked hippies doing Bible studies at Lake Como, which is what they're doing. They have an actual, <laughs> the author of the article sits in on a Bible study of all these old people who are uh -huh. just naked. And it, it's an interesting, you know, you read it and you're like, well, if this is, you know, they seem like they've got their, their heart in the right place, at least at Lake Como. They've got, you know, people just living their lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the middle course here is pretty clear, which is that, you know, sometimes you're nude and you're horny, but like sometimes you're nude and, and you're not horny. You're very much not horny. Yeah, you know, you're just like, I mean, sometimes very, you're horny and you're not nude. It's a very kind of ageist uh, argument to make though because the whole idea of family friendly is probably like raising children with better body acceptance and mm -hmm. but that's the idea for right, sure right and that maybe horny doesn't enter into it but I agree maybe there's like a sundown versus daylight you know and I, it's hard to talk about of course but I mean kids do eventually you know grow into young adults who are horny themselves yeah and and they're still part of your friendly family. That's right. You got to have these conversations you know? <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so the, they have a metal detector at Caliente? At, at Caliente, yeah. They had to install metal detectors. So Doesn't you go that in. Doesn't seem sort of limited application for a nudist colony? Well, you're not walking through naked because state of Florida laws, you have to be dressed anywhere outside of the resort property. So you come in clothed and then they're like, the author was talking about, they immediately start shedding their clothes. Like they can't get them off fast <laughs> enough. It's like, oh. This world has made me do this, but now I'm home. Yeah. So, yeah. and of course, this is in Florida, so the weather is nice. Yeah. You don't get a lot of nudists in Minnesota. Mm. Um, so, although they do say that the popularity is increasing, the Black Naturists Association, in particular, has increased its membership tenfold in the last year. Nice. So, yeah. they, you know, they're becoming more diverse. They're spreading mm. out. I think they got to stay in Florida, though. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, oh, I've got very reassuring news from Aaron Space Cute. right here. Uh, this article by uh, Dirk Schultze Makuch. Uh, the article is titled Life Recovers in a Geological Blink of an Eye After an Armageddon Event. Oh, thank yeah, goodness. I know, I know. But Tell see, us how long a geological yeah. blink is. Uh, well, the. <laughs> I'll quote the relevant portion of this article. The asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs also had devastating effects on the mammals that were around at the time. But a fossil record newly discovered by the authors in Colorado uh, show that just 100,000 years later, 
mammals had recovered enough to be about the same size they were just before the asteroid strike with a maximum body weight of about 8 kilograms. And in 700,000 years after the impact, some mammals weighed nearly 50 kilograms. So wow. not even a million so years. So I'll be honest, that's, 700, that's less than I thought. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is a lot less than I would have guessed uh, as someone who has knows nothing about anything uh, <laughs> myself. Like, yeah, it does seem pretty fast. Um, so this is this is terrific news because um, something bad's going to happen. That's right. So basically, the the, the Earth's going to be okay after us. We're done. We're going to be gone. But yes. but but the little mammals they'll come back pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, this study was done with little mammals, and it shows that after this time, they kind of return to how they were. Oh, or are they changed well, somewhat? Well, so th there was a lot of change. Yeah, okay. So obviously, this promoted a lot of biodiversity. Okay. You know, when the asteroid hit and killed all kinds of stuff, opened up a lot of you know slots on the, <laughs> the kind of food chain. You know, there was a lot of open uh, spots to be filled. Uh, that was another reason the, why the, the asteroid strike was actually, if you think about it, a terrific thing for the planet because it did encourage, uh, you know, the diverse emergence of new types of life. So, you know, things are getting a little stale. We just need to hit the reset Sometimes button. you got to mix it up a little bit, you know, just <laughs> drop an asteroid on your head, see what happens. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Speaking of killing things. Is it safe to eat roadkill? Mm. Mm. I'm going to vote no. But I also don't eat oysters. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> um, from a live science article, um, collecting roadkill is legal if you're eating it in over 20 states in the mm. United States. Uh, the most recent addition to this list is California. Okay. So they Big just one. made it legal. They said. In California. It's been legal right. in a lot of other places. In Vermont, it's almost kind of like a way of life. I'm pretty sure it's legal in Texas. I've heard. Actually, Texas is not one of the states listed here. Really? Um, I, I was just as surprised oh, as you are. It, you're going least, to jail. At least like on a, <laughs> My you know, hobby's done. It may not be that there's legislation. I think this is only for, you know, roadkill that's reported or that, you mm. know, they've created uh, systems for and that kind of thing. But for states that have like high wildlife collisions, it tends to be a little bit more common. So there are a few things if you are interested in eating roadkill that you need to consider. Okay. Lay it on me. I need to know. <laughs> Animals that die from their injuries after being hit by a car, and we're talking about roadkill specifically, can be eaten safely provided you follow some basic precautions. First, you want to inspect the animal to make sure that it wasn't sick or injured before the impact. Mm. You want to start with, you know, it was healthy. Um, you need to take heat into consideration. So unless it was recently killed, heat's just a no-no, right? If it's summertime and that deer has been sitting on the highway, mm. even for more than like 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Yeah, you want this to be something you killed yourself. Like, you know the moment it died. <laughs> or you saw it happen and were helpless to do anything and then... Because you value this animal and, and want to, you know, revere nature. After you gave it mouth to mouth. <laughs> and tried your best. Yeah. yeah. Performed surgery yes. upon the animal. You, you did everything you could. Uh, but, you know, you also want to be aware of dirt and water. Um, if it's been in a puddle, maybe let it be, you know. <sighs> These are all terrible scenarios. Like, I'm picturing even the cleanest, freshest roadkill. I'm like, yeah, all right, you're going to have to talk me into that one. But then, oh, no, you don't want it to be in a muddy disgusting cesspool of no i don't but if it's like a, a imagine if you will it's two days after thanksgiving you've had all the turkey that you wanted it's a clear bright cool day in vermont 
on a roadside thing, you know, by a cliff. You're painting such a beautiful picture. <laughs> You've the, just come from grandma's. <laughs> exactly. The kids are in the car singing yeah. some songs. You know, maybe there's still some snow, but none of it's melted yet because it's not that hot. <sighs> there's a freshly paved asphalt. The city just finally got those potholes done. You, you may have the conditions for ideal roadkill consumption or a candidate for it. Wow. Interestingly, where it is legal, you have to let them know you want you would like to harvest the animal before you help yourself. If you're not on the list, I presume if you eat roadkill, the book will be thrown at you. That's right. They're you coming to your house, SWAT team <laughs> bursting down you the may, door. You know, if you're eating roadkill where you're not supposed to or don't know the rules, you may not need a book to some, come after that's you. Right. <laughs> some hotshot uh, district attorney looking to... <laughs> Make their name is going to throw you in jail. Listen, guy, the law is the law. <laughs> it's going to be an offshoot of the show Cops. There's like Cops and then Cops Roadkill Edition, where that's all <laughs> they go after. I'm pretty sure there's a Grisham novel about this. Do you, do you know what is probably so annoying is if you are in one of these states working for like, you know, the wildlife department, whatever, and you are dealing with people who are very assiduous and following all the rules of roadkill collection. Calling up and letting like you someone's know. calling is like, I need you to get me some paperwork <laughs> somehow. I'm a, I'm on the on the side of the highway and there's a dead squirrel I'd really like to eat. <laughs> Well, but I know, want to make sure I'm 100% within the bounds of legality here. So please get me my permit as soon as possible. And you know there's got to be, like, once you've got people picking up roadkill, it is a very tiny jump before you've got people fighting over roadkill. You know, the situation where someone else hit the deer and you're like, oh, well, that, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and claim that. Like, uh, no, that's my deer. And then you got to adjudicate that. That's just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, this article from The Conversation is about why aging should be a disease. So say, cells become old. It's called senescence. S uh, cells that are senescence or senesced. <laughs> Cellular senescence results in your white blood cells attacking and killing or whatevering them. I don't actually know how science works. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, that that generally is what happens to you over the course of your life. But then, you know, you just get older and older and there's more and more of these cells and they change your skin tissue so that it is more saggy and it has uh, wrinkles. It changes your joints so they don't work as well. You're just um, describing like my morning thought process every time I wake up like, oh, there's more senescent cells in me yes. now. Yes. And but but so say your heart. When it suffers senescence, it, it's cardiovascular disease. So why is aging not a disease? Mm. I was just saying it's the underlying process that leads to a lot of diseases. So why don't we just say mm. this is the right. prima facie disease? We recognize it as disease when it's localized to certain mm -hmm. types of organs and that sort of thing. So why do we not recognize it right. as... And we have medicines and we have treatments for those things. So this particular article says, hey, maybe we should rethink that. View it as a disease. Try and treat it instead of just foisting people off. You know, and then also increasing uh, awareness that like perhaps your diet and your exercise could increase your symptoms and uh, not increase, <laughs> could decrease your symptoms of aging and use that as an actual approach instead of just saying, hey, you're getting older. You could mm -hmm. say, you know, if you tried eating these things, if you tried eating fewer calories, then, you know, that would improve uh, your lifestyle. But an attitude of wellness as opposed yeah. to... Yeah. Well, you're just gonna die. And that's exactly. How it is. Yeah. Well, so so to us uh, civilians, it it may seem like a very like just philosophical question or a semantic question, like whether or not you treat 
aging as a disease, but I suppose it probably has like really serious implications for the actual right, the practice world, and industry well, and, and of funding. Health. Like if yeah. my health insurance company has to pay for my gym membership because mm-hmm. my aging is a disease, that opens up a whole Yeah. Yeah, because new... the World Health Organization has codes and so something's classified the code for disease or a code for a natural process. Mm-hmm. You know, if we change the code for aging and, you know, we don't take the World Health Organization necessarily to heart. Uh, they say that <laughs> we ignore what they yeah, say. Yeah. Well, I mean, they say that we should breastfeed until 18 months. And that's generally not not done. Yeah. Um, so it's not like if the World Health Organization did this, we would suddenly see like our insurances. Yeah. I guarantee you my insurance company would not be like, oh, cool. The yeah. World Health Organization says I should give you more money. I will definitely jump right on I feel on like that. it's viewed as some sort of like hippie reactionist organization by the profit making people. Well, there is definitely something to the idea of like, I read somewhere, it's like only 10% of medical schools require their doctors to take a single nutrition course. Like they just, that is not in their purview. They don't know anything about it. And some of them will honestly say, look, I don't know anything about this. Go find it somewhere else. And some of them will say, no, that stuff doesn't matter. And so really, you're really going to try and tell me the diet doesn't have any effect on how my body is feeling on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, in their defense, which of us are going to listen to them when yeah, they say Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. They maybe they did they did say it when they were young and idealistic, and, and now they're like, like, I know you're going to stuff your face with French fries. So, <laughs> so I'm going to give you this incredibly powerful pill with really bad uh, side effects. Next link. Next, Next link. link. So... This is a, sort of a follow-up article from The Guardian. The oldest woman in the world, not just alive today, but on record, Jean Calment, she was uh, 122 years old when she died. Wow. This woman was sort of a local celebrity, obviously. You know, she died in 1997. So it was relatively recent. They had, you know, journalists would come to her nursing home on her birthday every year. There was a big thing. Every time she got a little older or someone who was, you know, close in age, but they died, she took the record, whatever. She was a celebrated figure. Everybody knew about her. So earlier this year, this Russian mathematician by the name of Nikolai Zak wrote a paper in which he alleged that actually he thinks it was all a scam, that this woman who was supposedly 122 years old was not Jean Calment, but in fact her daughter, Yvonne, and that Jean had died back in the 30s and Yvonne had taken over her identity. So at 122, she was actually only in her 90s, which is respectable, but not uh, not that impressive. <laughs> which is the thing I like. I like to visit retirement communities and <laughs> you know, say that. You're not the, that impressive, identity, <laughs> Grandma. Not, not that impressed. Not that impressed. Yeah. And so, you know, he wrote this paper and it wasn't really supposed to be much of a big thing. He just sort of said, hey, you know, I've done some research and record keeping in the 30s is not great. But he has a fair amount of evidence. There are inconsistencies where she often mixes up her husband and her father, as you would if you were actually Mm. your own child. And there were other things like her eye color seemed to have changed in some photos. There, you know, there was some evidence where you think, you know, maybe this guy's onto something. Who knows? But the French did not take kindly to this paper. They got very angry, like in a way that only French people, I think, can get angry. (laughs) And there was an immediate backlash, not just against this idea of how dare you impugn our local hero, but also the fact that Nikolai Zak was Russian. They sort of turned it back on him personally, and they said, you're a Russian troll who is trying to sow (laughs) doubt in our way of Western (laughs) science and record keeping. And furthermore, you are trying to get... The uh, third most oldest person actually is Russian, and you're just trying to knock the top two off so that Russia can have the glory of the oldest person in the world. And it got very personal. Like, he started CCing heads of state, trying to get more attention to say, look, they're destroying me for no reason. I'm just a guy who did some research. 
And meanwhile, the people in the city in France where she was from, they started a Facebook group that gathered 1,500 members called the Counter-Investigation into the Jean Calment Investigation. <laughs> and to their credit, they actually brought up a fair amount of compelling research as well. They found this photo of the daughter and they like used internet sleuthing to figure out with Google Maps that the mountain range in the background was this sanatorium in Switzerland where you would go if you had tuberculosis. And they found records that said her husband had been given leave from his job in the army to take care of her. So at the very least, if she was taking over her mother's life, they had to have been planning this for years. Uh, and they also pointed out she had a seven-year-old son at the time. So she would have had to train a seven-year-old child to never let the secret mm. out and stop calling her mama. And the other big question, of course, is they say, why? Why would anyone do this? And Zach's answer was, ah, because in this interwar period, inheritance taxes were huge. And so when the mother died, they would have taken up to 35% of the money. And this way, the family basically got to say, no, nah, the daughter died. At the end of the day, evidence-wise, there's good arguments on both sides. I could see it going either way. But the kicker is they have this woman's DNA. It would be so easy <laughs> for them to quickly mm. just run a little 23 and me on it, yeah. figure out, is yeah. she the mother? Is she the daughter? But the French will not release the DNA. They have it in a research laboratory, and they're not handing it yeah. over, which, of course, a lot of people are saying, ah, it's because uh -huh. you know it's, she's not uh -huh. really her. It's indecent. What, are you going to peek in a grand-mère's uh, panty drawer? Like, you know, this is... This is... <laughs> it's right. That's her yeah. blood. Don't that touch is it. her blood. Well, and, of course, the counterargument they're saying is, no, 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 this woman's blood holds the secret to aging, mm. and that, in fact... <laughs> If we give it to the Russians, they're going to have the technology. Oh, right. It's this very... They're going to have the oldest ladies in the world. <laughs> the conspiracies are just so rich in all of this. And it's a really fascinating look, I guess, into mm -hmm. how something so insignificant. I mean, yeah. honestly, who cares if this woman was 122 or not? Like, it, whatever. The, but the, the people take it so seriously. No, well, I mean, the people who would benefit the most from finding out that she was a fraud it would be the French, would it not? They have 35% of her estate. That's true. Uh, the government owed. is owed with interest, I think yes. I'd say, oh. since the 1930s. But I, the French are very, very, if you've been to France, you know they are very, very, very passionate about their little old ladies. And, That's right. You, you know, protect those like, old ladies. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the, I, I, the national symbol of France, not, a lot of people don't know this, is <laughs> is a tiny old woman in a windbreaker Coming out arguing of with a bakery clerk. Mm -hmm. You know. Coming out of a fleur de lis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. While you're waiting in line behind her, to just hoping to get your uh, palm du chocolat or whatever. I, you're already braver than I am just trying to pronounce stuff in French. I won't touch it. I know they'll, they'll come after me. I I'm can't. very I'm very cosmopolitan. I, I think I can get away with it. I've always you, said that about you. You're my Italian earlier. This, I'm really, I'm hopping the globe uh, this episode. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. So there was a terror attack in London last week, as mm -hmm. uh, most of us have heard. There were a series of knifings on the London Bridge. Obviously, very harrowing, terrifying moment, but alleviated somewhat by the colorful detail that I think a lot of us heard that uh, one of the onlookers who heroically responded grabbed a, a narwhal tusk, oh, yeah. which was uh, decorating, adorning some nearby pub or something like that. And uh, use the narwhal tusk as a uh, lance to uh, stabbing kind of you know, help subdue uh, one of these attackers, which uh, led to an article in The Guardian by Philip Hoare called uh, A Narwhal Tusk Was Used Against the London Bridge Attacker. But what is it? Well, it's a 
narwhal it's tusk? It's a narwhal tusk. But, but was uh, it a replica or an actual piece of animal? It was a real narwhal tusk, apparently. Yeah, I think the pub had like a like a nautical theme. Like that, that was part of their, their whole. Yeah. This article just has a few fun facts about narwhal tusks. Perhaps most interesting to me is that it is actually, tusk is a misnomer, it's an extended tooth that erupts through the whale's upper lip and spirals out. Aww. Which so is, it is constantly growing, like spiraling like a snail shell, like it keeps going. Is uh, that what they're saying? I don't know if it, it, if it you mean continues like beaver growing. Because in theory, you're stabbing things with it. You're, if you're a narwhal, you're going around hunting with this thing. Mm-hmm. It's going to get dull. It's gonna, you're going to need to kind of grow... Well, a, another interesting fact is that, um, you know, it was kind of presumed that like, oh, this must be used in like, you know, like mating rituals, like male narwhals, you know, attack each other with these tusks. But it's actually very sensitive. It has nerve endings at the surface. Oh. And the animals will rub tusks together as a form of sensory communication. They're kissing. Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of nuzzle. Aww. So it's like, you know, like imagine if. Uh, a form of like intimate communication was to, you know, rub your teeth together with someone else, a tooth that had uh, extruded through your upper lip over the course of your life. And then after you're dead, that tooth gets hung on the wall in a bar and <laughs> <laughs> used, used for to, defense to yeah. save people's lives. Yeah. And there, there, my, there's some suggestion here that no, narwhals actually have this action of solidarity that they do where if one animal's tusk gets broken off, another narwhal may even break off the tip of its own tusk in the gap, which is just like this kind of seemingly altruistic gesture of like right, in so they the, match. The, the hole so that, well, it, you're, you're actually, oh, I you're guess, actually like giving trying to a help, portion like, of your hoard. Wow. Yeah, which <laughs> sounds like pretty hard to do, kind of a tricky yeah. little maneuver. But um, did you know that narwhal also comes from the Old Norse for corpse whale? Did not because know that. Uh, they saw narwhals and they, they, they said they resembled a drowned person, the hmm. spotted hide of the narwhal, oh, I guess, like re- resembles the, like, the mottled, bloated corpse. Hmm, of, this uh, is the most metal article ever. Yeah. Narwhals are apparently are pretty yeah. dark. But it's like, ge- but it's gentle metal, you know? It's like, it, this gets at like the real community. It's a of, metal ballad. Yeah, it looks scary. It looks like this this horn, but like it's, it's actually a loving community of people who will break off their tusks for you at any moment, as long as you're a fellow metal fan, you know? That is actually a really apt description of I the know. metal community. <laughs> It's a unifying force. It's a, you know, sensitive, heavy feelers that have to kind of funnel and drown uh-huh. their, their anger. And I with, see with some protuberance that looks scary, but actually it's very sensitive. Oh. It's very sensitive. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. There are so many more great articles out there. Some of the ones we didn't get to today. Russian cows get VR headsets to reduce anxiety. <laughs> U.S. Special Forces develop bullets that can work underwater. And how Peru's Potato Museum could stave off the world food crisis. So fascinating stuff. That and all of the links that we've discussed today can be found on daminteresting.com in the curated links section. Also, you guys, I have some very exciting news. We have our very first patron on Patreon. <gasps> yay! Oh, so yay! shout out to Nancy McLean for putting her money where her ears are. Uh, we appreciate all of our listeners. We appreciate our donors. Yeah, maybe a little more about the same. We won't play favorites, but, you know, we do like to be supported in our work. And we hope that you guys are enjoying the content that we're making for you today. 
So if you do want to donate, you can go to patreon.com. We are called Damn Interesting Week. You can also donate through damninteresting.com in the traditional way. Just let us know that it's for the weekly podcast because you like us so much. We hope that you will subscribe and stay with us and come back next week for even more amazing content. Until then, I am Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Courtney Hopkin. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.